but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hi everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. And uh, well, how does it feel to be 101? We're not quite yet 101. But <laughs> We're technically still 100. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, like TV shows can go into syndication after they reach 100 episodes, which means somebody pays you a lot of money to air your episodes. I wish that happened in podcast land. I think they're just still all available for free. They are. Mm. Mm -hmm. How is that working out? superb <laughs> thank you all to everybody who reached out with congratulations and feedback after the last episode you were all heard and appreciated here here i'm drinking champagne well sparkling wine out of a new champ one of those oblong short champagne glasses i feel like betty draper well you've wanted them for years and i happened upon them at ikea yesterday for 2.99 a pop mm -hmm. so i said are they plastic as if I would ever buy plastic glasses. <laughs> Shall we get the latest Venus heartbreak out of the way? Ugh. I, I was sure that she was bound to win one of these. You were more sure than I was. <laughs> I told you the day before that Caroline was going to fuck up our lives. Yeah. Man. So Caroline has had a great year, obviously. This was her eighth final, her second title. But she had been the bridesmaid a lot this year. Both Venus and she had been. But there was something about her going into this tournament that after those first two rounds, giving a bagel to Spitalina, a bagel to Halep, I mean, there was just nothing stopping her. I don't put a lot of credence in that final round robin match. Well, still, she lost to Garcia, who was the hottest player in tour in the fall. There was no mm -hmm. shame in that. Right. But if you know you're definitely in the semifinals, you may not go as hard in the last round robin match when you're up 5-3 in the third you're you're trying to win that match yeah regardless of yeah. circumstance and as has been pointed out by a lot of folks throughout the course of last week you may call it a dead rubber but there was still a lot to play for for garcia and caroline still had a bunch of money and a bunch of points to play for right which is not nothing and garcia acquitted herself well she beat two people down from 3-5 in the third set. I was a little worried that Venus was going to be next, but Venus pulled through that one. You're talking about the semifinal? Yeah. Do you want to start from the start of the tournament? Okay, You're sure. kind of just like throwing shit all over the, the chalkboard um, right now. Okay. The very first match of the tournament was Venus against Pliskova, and Pliskova won that fairly handily. And that came right off the back of, I think it was Carl Bouchard tweeting that Venus said that the the court is very slow. Mm -hmm. And when you see that result, you're like, well, damn. <laughs> well, okay, Venus has said that in the past. A lot of players have said, have commented about court speed and been wrong or exaggerated. And so when Ven I... Venus said that about the court in Cincinnati and I didn't think it was yes. slow watching it in person. Yeah, so we've seen it before, but I think in this case, Venus was spot on. This court was like sludge. It was, dare we say, tailor-made for Wozniacki. Was it? Yes. I, like, I know, but... It doesn't demean or diminish what she accomplished. Mm -hmm. But there's no way watching we're getting ahead of ourselves in terms of the sequence of the tournament here. But there's no way you watch that final and all those balls that Caroline retrieved from impossible positions or mm -hmm. what would be impossible positions on even a, a regularly paced hard court and forced Venus to hit four or five more shots. Yeah, but it also slows down her shots, too. Which, they were more powerful and more aggressive than usual. But Caroline is not adept at clay, for example. I'm struggling to find why, like, why this is the case. Why this was a, a court that was tailor-made for Wozniacki. You get different spins on clay courts. On a hard court, Caroline is able to absorb the pace of other players, which is the perfect matchup for against Venus where it hasn't been in the past in other right. hard courts because right. she's able to use Venus's pace create more for herself and still have enough time to place the ball where she needs to and redirect the ball at will 
That's my take on it. Okay. You disagree? No, I don't. I just wanted someone to explain it to me. So Venus loses the first match, which means that she then has to beat Ostapenko, which she does in three sets, coming from behind. She has to beat Muguruza in a winner-take-all round-robin match to get to the semifinals. She does that coming from behind in the first set as well. And man, you look at that scoreline against Ostapenko. They were just trading 7-5 sets well over three hours. (laughs) You think to yourself, well, here's Venus at the end of this long season. It's already a long shot that she's going to win this tournament based on the surface, based on the slew of opponents. And if we are to believe at that time what we've been told all year, that Venus's achievements was because she hadn't played the top players. And here she has to go play all these top players back to back mm-hmm. on a surface that would be her least favorite. I'm sure she'd pick a clay court over this court. Right. I think she would. And she, she manages to do it. She gets to the, the semifinal stage where she plays the hottest player on tour, Garcia, and she beats her in three sets as well. Garcia's run is a good example of how there actually can be real intrigue in the late stages of round robin. And the qualification scenarios are very confusing and they don't always make for good viewing because it's sometimes it's such a foregone conclusion who will make it. But for example, Garcia knocked out Halep by beating Svitolina in her final round robin match. Venus versus Muguruza, whoever won that would have gone through. So these are high stakes matches at the end of the round robin. In some situations, you have a clear cut either or scenario. So for example, with that Muguruza Venus match, the winner advanced. You have situations where the winner of a match doesn't advance immediately. They have to wait to see how many sets the other person lost in the other mm-hmm. match and if they won or lost and their multiple contingencies which folks tend to put together in these little graphs and graphics <laughs> that I can never make sense um, of. I don't even understand the graphs, the charts. Yeah, the charts. I, 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 just, I just need somebody to write it out and tell me. Right. In words. Halep gets to number one. Well, she was number one, but she secures the year and number one rank, which was available to seven women mm-hmm. last week. And so that's sorted out. But she got it by not reaching the semifinals. It's just in keeping with this totally confounding year in women's tennis. In terms of what? I, it, people have basically stumbled into the number one ranking. Pliskova was number one without winning a single Premier 5, Premier Mandatory, Grand Slam, or the WTA Finals. Halep has secured the year end number one by winning a tournament and not even making the semifinals at the year end. Yeah, but this is how the ranking system works. Like, you don't get necessarily the number one ranking based on the immediate good performance that you put in. It's based on when points fall off for other people. Correct. But you can agree that this is a bizarre year in WTA history. Sure. Because there are usually one or two dominant players at the top. I'm not bothered by it. Nor do I think it has to have, and I'm not saying you are Mm. putting this on it, but nor does it have to have a negative connotation to it. Sure. What I'm saying is maybe it's not something I want to see every year. How about that? I think you're just pining for Serena to come back. Like, I don't expect somebody in your position who's Mm. had Serena dominate and be number one for however many years to be able to appreciate this scenario. (laughs) I like to see a little more order, Mm. so to speak. This is not to to trash any of the achievements that these women have made, which have been legion. Svitolina, for example, won three of the five Premier Five tournaments. She had a great year, but I, I just like to see somebody assert themselves as the head of the pack, even if they're not totally dominating. If you want to single out Halep in particular, I can understand to an extent because she's the person who's had number one on her racket most this year right. and unable to do it. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't... Just a case of back-ending into world number one and year-end number one was also not being able to do it when she could have multiple times throughout the year. So if you want to have that knock on her, fine, have that. Okay. But, like, the other ones, I mean, it just is what it is. I say, sure. en- I say enjoy it. All right. Let's get back to Caroline because she should probably be the star of this episode mm-hmm. because it, it was an amazing performance. She's been on a roll. She won in Tokyo. She defended her title there. And I don't know. I know that she's been 
more aggressive on the whole for the entire year. So I don't want to say, oh, this is the new aggressive Caroline Wozniacki, because that's not entirely true. But it seems like she really put some things together. Like she was just feeling the ball. She was seeing the ball impeccably. And I was struck by how ready she was to move forward a lot. It seemed like more than anything, maybe it was... I'm sure, a combination of hard work by herself and her team, but also an example of one of those instances where things just seem to click. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, whether it's a comfort level with the surface, not to bang that drum again, (laughs) (laughs) or just the culmination of a string of good to great results throughout the entire year, still feeling fresh, just everything coming together with her game being unsung as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Because it's not just that somebody's able to have a one-off good result. And it's not just that somebody's playing well. Many times we see people play well and lose consecutive matches. Right. Or play well up to a certain round. Uh-huh. It's, a lot of times it's a bit of a mystery as to why somebody isn't able to string together great results based on the eye test and the way that you see them play. Mm-hmm. You know, you run into an opponent that you've had a bad history head-to-head against, you don't feel comfortable playing them, you get different spins from a player, you might wake up not feeling that great that day, your game is like minuscule bits off in that one. There's so many variables. You might just be in a bad mood. Yeah. And uh, Caroline just seemed to have everything working for her this week. Yes. Most people know that Caroline has one of the best backhands out there that was fully functioning, but I was struck watching her strike that forehand. Inside out, cross court, she was hitting swinging volleys with the forehand. I mean, it was just working so well. And again, like I'm gonna sound like a broken record, her willingness to move forward and to be aggressive within points made all the difference, I think. She had a certain comfort level with being able to execute shots, Mm -hmm. especially in that final that I hadn't seen in in a while. Now, we've had some surprising winners at the finals in the past few years. We had Radwanska and we had Sibylkova last year. Both of them are now ranked in the 20s, I believe. Is this a fast track to a Grand Slam title? It hasn't been. It hasn't been. It has been for... It was for Moresmo that one year. That's way, You're way back. one out of a, yeah. a bag of scores at this but point. But do you think winning a big title like this and gaining that confidence can carry players into a bigger result? Or is the seven-match schedule over two weeks just a completely different experience? I don't think you can use anything about this tournament to predict anything. Mm. Because I feel like a lot of it is arbitrary, somewhat inflated and an anomaly for the rest of the season. It's coming at the end of the year. It's coming on a surface that most players don't get to replicate throughout much of the year. After you win this, you then have an off-season. You're probably very excited to take a month off or a few weeks off, have vacation, and then you're starting from scratch again to prepare for totally different conditions. A new year, maybe a new team, new goals. And you also have a situation where the the confidence that you may, you may gain from winning all these points is not necessarily comparable to winning Indian Wells or Toronto. You know, one of these uh-huh. premier events where you play five, six matches during the week, back to back to back, and you get that thousand points. You're getting 125 points for losing a match. It's like mm. a, almost like a blue ribbon ceremony for <laughs> playing well the whole year. Well, that's true. You get and, you get big rewards for simply getting there. Yeah, and, for, and you losing. deserve to benefit from that. Right. You know, but I'm just saying that there's so much about this particular event that doesn't necessarily prepare you to then win a Grand Slam. That's true. And I imagine it's really difficult to carry on that momentum when you won't be getting to Australia for two and a half months from now. You take a few days off, then you do a huge training block, probably in December. Yeah, it's just... The way that the season ends, I don't know how, you know, where are you at in January? I think you look at somebody in a specific instance and and gauge what their game and skill set is outside of that event to then be able to tell if they can apply that to a Grand Slam Mm -hmm. situation. 
he felt like with Radvanska, maybe her only shot would be at Wimbledon. Right. And she hasn't really shown this year at all that that's forthcoming. No, and Sybil she's Kova, had injuries and yeah, she and, got married and I don't know. She's mentioned or her team has mentioned they don't know how long she's going to be playing, honestly. I mean, th- that's besides the point. It but is, also, yeah. somebody like Sibylkova, she her game doesn't meet or pass the eye test to me as a Grand Slam champion. Really? No. I mean, she's a finalist. She's been a semifinalist before that. Maybe this will be what she needs to win the US, US Open or Australian Open like with me and Sloane Stevens mm-hmm. this year, saying that she just didn't have the game. Right. But I, I feel that if Sloane Stevens won the US Open, that Caroline Wozniacki can, can win a Grand Slam. My, you're getting ahead of me here. Okay. I am now saying that I've long felt that Wozniacki has the game to win. Mm-hmm. Because not, okay, fine, she doesn't have the big, big weapons that some of the more powerful players have, but she has all those other etc. and spades. Right. And if she's feeling herself like she was at this tournament, then it's it's entirely possible. Like, she's somebody who, not like Radwanska, who's never been to number one, not like Zibolkova, who's never been to number one, she's been at the top of the game for a long time. She's been in finals before... She hangs out with greatness. She's bested with Serena Williams. Like, she knows what it takes. And it's entirely possible, I don't want to say likely, but more than those other two you mentioned, she would stand a better chance of winning going mm-hmm. forward, to my mind. I mean, she was number one for, like, 60-something weeks. She knows what it's like at the top. She likes the spotlight. I think she likes being a celebrity, which helps. Honestly, like, that's not a criticism at all. I think that helps. And Sloane Stevens won the U.S. Open without showing much outright aggression. She used power effectively when she needed it, but I don't think she used it that much. And I think that if Caroline believes that she can stand up against Venus and Serena and power players like that, then yeah, she can win a Grand Slam. I don't know if she will, but it's certainly not impossible. I was struck by this statistic in particular for Caroline's year. 14 wins over top 10 players. 14. Yeah, that's a lot. Uh, that means you're putting yourself in positions to get late into tournaments and you're doing well when you get there. And her record in semifinals this year is crazy. I want to make uh, one final comment on Venus for this segment in that it's been so great to watch Venus adapt her game to different surfaces throughout the course of the year and different scenarios within matches. We commented earlier about how in Australia, after she lost that first set to Van Der Wey in the semifinals, that she mm-hmm. moved away from outright aggression to then dialing it back a little bit and, and responding to what Coco was giving yeah. her. Yeah. And she's doubled down on that throughout the year, so much so that we're seeing her utilize uh, backhand slices more than I've ever seen Venus hit backhand slices mm-hmm. I was to keep herself very happy to see that to keep herself in points and I think that's what what's uh, behind it more than anything else it's extending rallies giving herself another shot right she even mm-hmm. hit some forehand slices against Wozniacki in yeah. the final and many times we see Venus hitting from positions and situations within points that we haven't seen in years frankly right There was that point against Muguruza where she was drawn to net. Muguruza lobbed her. She goes back to the baseline, chases it down, hits a lob of her own or a high (laughs) ball, pushes Muguruza back on the backhand side toward the baseline. And when Muguruza hits that backhand cross court into Venus's wheelhouse, she then fires the backhand up the line Mm -hmm. for the winner. And then in that second set against Caroline, it was for Venus to get back on serve, right? Yes. And she hit that crazy forehand cross-court pass. I said it's one of the best shots I've seen in the past few weeks. I think it's one of the best shots of my life. It was like a Rafa Wimbledon 2008 forehand passing shot. It was crazy. Um, That that point against Muguruza where she, I mean, she was really hung out to dry. Like she should have lost that point. Muguruza should have just smashed it and ended it. That is the power of Venus Williams' preparation I always thought this is one of my favorite parts of her game, that she is running around the court with her backhand ready to go. Her racket is back so early. And it's it's strange because it's not like an aesthetic part of tennis, but it's something that I absolutely love to watch. 
is her preparation because it, it teaches, I think can teach anyone a real important part of playing tennis. We were a couple games away from really maybe getting just the cherry on top of a fantastic WTA season if Venus was able to come back all the way from Love 5 in that second set. Yeah. That third set might have made for some of the most compelling viewing all year. Mm-hmm. And that says something because we've had some great matches. That said, Venus accounted herself well in that final. Caroline was just too good. That's the bottom line. She was. There was not a lot stopping that momentum. I will say, please, I'm a Venus fan. Please don't hate on me for this. When Venus said in her on-court interview that she hadn't really watched Caroline play this week and honestly didn't seem that too interested in scouting, she was ready for bed, I was discouraged. She has a team for that. I know, but I've heard that sort of thing before from Venus. And you mentioned her adapting within a match. It, that, that to me is flipping Venus's famous stubbornness on its head. But I think Venus's stubbornness rears its head in different ways too. For a long time, she's been stubborn about her game. There were little things she could have done to adapt, and she didn't want to. But this was really discouraging to me because Caroline is out here like blitzing people, destroying the world number one. And Venus didn't really seem like she she grasped how Caroline was playing and why. I mean... I know you're not going to agree. No, I'm, just... I'm not going to agree at all. She has multiple people in her camp to do that. I'm sure she had a meeting before her match. Yeah. During practice with her coach. Like, what is that... When you build that trust with your team, you don't need to see it. Like, Mm. the bones of Caroline's game, Venus is very familiar with. She had beaten her seven straight times. Right. Which can create a little complacency. Is what you're leaning on here, in that she probably felt like, okay, I I know what's going on. I don't need to do any more homework. But to my mind, I think that's, that's bollocks. Okay. I'm not saying that Venus is not a professional. Because that would be ridiculous. Mm. I'm just saying I didn't really like... I didn't like to hear that. She could also be lying. She could have been in her hotel room watching film every night. And she's Mm. not about to tell you that she's doing it. Right. She's she's cagey. Yeah. So that's kind of like 101 not showing your cards. Right. right? Like it's... This is all speculation and hearsay. Mm -hmm. And... Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Now Venus was playful on court. She was... Uh, generous with fans, with signing autographs. But when she got to the press room, it was a different story. We've seen snippets of this Venus Mm -hmm. over the years, and it's usually a one-off situation where it's one press conference where she's not feeling it. But it seemed like every press conference, this tournament, she was uh, guarded, shall we say. (laughs) Yeah, she was, I mean, a bit surly. And there were some journalists who were complaining on Twitter and basically waiting with bated breath for the next Venus press conference to see how she would behave. And I'm using that word purposely. That is totally beside the point. I'm more, I'm more interested in, I watch that, I'm like, is something going on with Venus? Yes. You know, this is not about, well, oh, how she treats the press or whatever. From a personal perspective i'm invested in saying well wow like maybe something is actually going on Mm -hmm. and the thing that that comes to my mind is that this traffic incident where this guy was killed that venus was involved with Mm -hmm. it's it's still ongoing there there were reports that they're trying to depose her to get her on record to talk about what happened Mm -hmm. you know she's busy traveling around the world doing her various businesses and competing in tennis tournaments and while she may have and we definitely thought this was all wrapped up by now her name is still being dragged through the press, the various press. Right. And given that this is all fresh again, leading into this tournament, perhaps she's carrying some residual resentment for what happened at Wimbledon. That's what came to my mind. And maybe it's just, I'm not having it. To the point where if you think you want to ask about that, see the look on my face <laughs> and think again. That maybe part of her, her demeanor is yeah. a defense mechanism. Yeah. I can see that. I, she said a lot, I'm just really tired, I want to go to bed, which is very much a Serena tactic. <laughs> she was playing three-hour matches against women half her age mm. on a surface that she absolutely despises. <laughs> right. You know? And as you know, the obligations for a player 
after their match goes far beyond just that one press conference. Yeah. They may be participating in WTA videos. There's the on-court stuff. There's talking to fans and making sure you know, you're giving them all of yourself. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of affective labor. In a lot of ways, the post-match press conference is the least of what the players have to do, right. especially in a big event. You have all the sponsor stuff, the network stuff. You also start the week with giving your all-access availability. So on the one hand, I definitely understand the journalists who, for a lot of them, pay out of pocket to get to these tournaments strewn way across the globe to get as much fresh content as possible and then to be met with Venus who's being obtuse in these (laughs) press conferences, right? Uh But there's also the Venus who would have given you other insights Mm -hmm. earlier in the week, you know, outside of the post-match press conferences. And so at 37, at the end of a long season, after Wimbledon, what happened there, Mm. after all the various microaggressions, not so microaggressions over the years from members of, I don't want to say press, like some of them are just, some of them them were, unfortunately, some of them are not even journalists. (laughs) Let's be real. You know, it's, I can definitely see the fatigue to want to not give as much as one would hope, put it that way. Mm -hmm. But is it not, at 37, it's definitely not her right because there are are certain rules, so to speak, that players are expected to follow, right? Right. But I have no problem, I've said this before, giving Venus a pass for certain things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now, as, you know, we have been in the press rooms in much more modest circumstances than the WTA finals. So I can understand why reporters who are doing their jobs want to get good stuff, right? And they feel like, listen, you can try a little harder than that. But at the same time, I do feel that there's always more to write about. How often do you even get like good quotes in press anyway? Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times you're there, you've written your story, you're there to get a few quotes to to just add to the reportage, right? But also remember that Venus has already given a lot by way of on-court interviews. There's gold in some of those on-court interviews all throughout the year. And she's given gold and so much to write about with her play on court. Mm. But then you also have Venus playing this epic three-hour match against Ostapenko and you wonder, well, what more do you need to be able to write a story? Right, right. That's one aspect of it. At this point, Venus has given us so many inspirational quotes throughout the mm. course of the year. Like You could draw on any one of them to make your inferential statements, you know, to be able to craft a piece. Uh, I get the disappointment. I do. I don't want to belittle that. But I also take the grandstanding, especially on Twitter, with a grain of salt. And even more so, the so-called fans who are then going to be out in these Twitter streets commenting on articles, commenting on tweets, berating Venus, like, no. reevaluate your Go life. Go away. Just, just stop. Pardon us if you hear any screaming children or any sort of noise because it's Halloween right now and we're being very boring by not doing anything that may come through on the recording here or there. Yeah, there's like lots of little critters flit- flit- <laughs> flitting around outside right now. Okay, if we're ready to move on from Singapore... Next on the agenda, you have who exactly is Player of the Year? I had tweeted when the Player of the Year stuff went out that, and so Venus goes on to win Singapore, what then? And she came very close to winning Singapore. And to my mind, if she had won Singapore, she'd be without question the Player of the Year. I agree. And you could still make the argument for her. I'm more of the opinion that there is no one Player of the Year at this point. Oh, that's such a cop-out. It's a cop-out, but it's it's kind of true. And it's it's fitting with the tenor of the WTA season overall. It's been a potluck. Everybody's brought something to the dinner table. And don't look at me <laughs> like dinner that. dinner table. <laughs> Most, usually people just dinner say party. table. To the party or whatever. <laughs> you could make the argument that Caroline is a, is a player of the year. She won the finals. No, I don't think so. Oh. She's underperformed at the majors. Okay. I'm saying you could make that argument if you wanted to. Why Muguruza more than her? Muguruza, well, because she, she won, won a major. She won the major, but mm-hmm. she, outside of Cincinnati, what else did she do right. all year? She had a lot of bad results, too. I think 
in order to be player of the year, you have to win a title. Like it's, it's that simple. You have to win at least one. And as much as it pains me, I just can't put Venus there. She made the finals of three of the five biggest tournaments. She, yes. Yeah. yeah. And that's an amazing achievement. And she beat two of the four Grand Slam winners at the WTA finals. And she made a semi in the other one, right? Yes. Wasn't it the semis at the US Open she made? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, lost to Sloan. Uh-huh. I just think you have, like, you have to win a title, no matter how big, in order to be considered. But in a year where somebody who doesn't have more than one big title and consistent results the way she has in mm-hmm. the big events, where does that leave us? Right. And if you're saying you need to have a title, a big title, well, Caroline has a big title. It may not be a slam, but it's a big title, and she has a whole bunch of other finals. And consistency in spades in the way that other players haven't. Okay. I just think greatness is really defined by the Grand Slam tournaments, and Caroline can't measure up in that area. Uh, it's, it's, it's all very complex for me. It is. Because I'm very much on board with the idea that the Grand Slams are not necessarily overrated, but overvalued at I, this point. I disagree. I'm with Chris Everett here. I think that there are certain WTA tour tournaments that have artificially elevated points totals because the tour simply needs to get players interested in playing WTA tournaments. The tour runs the ranking system. They can assign the points as they wish. And I just don't think there's any reason that Beijing should be worth a thousand points. It's beyond the points. It's not, it's not about the points. It's about the money. That's where it's at. Players, when they say, oh, I'm fine, yes, there's the prestige that comes along with the Grand Slam tournaments, but Martina made the point this week, I don't know if you listened to her WTA Insider appearance, no. but she said, back in my day, in the late 70s, early 80s, yes, the Grand Slams were considered, by any metric, the most prestigious events, but they were not the most rewarding events. Mm. You got paid much more to win smaller events. Really? And so, yeah. And it's not until... The last two decades, and much more so in the last 10 years, that the prize money has just exploded exponentially in Grand Slams. Mm -hmm. And there has to be some accounting for that in the way that we view the lesser events. Because how can they compete? You can't compete. Like a player is going to say, well, I'm not going to play two weeks before the US Open because I want to be ready for that event. Right. And she was saying, Martina, in that appearance, that... This whole business of, oh, I'm treating this event as a warm-up for the U.S. Open, it's, it's bullshit. Like, it's a tournament, you show up, you should be giving your all, you should be playing. And that type of mentality hurts the tour, more so than assigning points. Okay, I'm not sure that I agree, but I hear you. I think that the Grand Slam should be worth more, in proportion to the Premier Mandatories and the Premier Five. More what? More points. They're, they're already worth twice as many. Twice, yes. Yeah. It should be more. Oh, see, I I I disagree. Svitolina won three premier mandatories, and that's not not like winning a slam, in my mind. You have five good days of work. That's different. You can't have it both ways, then. By your standards, then, then Muguruza is the player of the year. Yes. Okay. She is. She won Wimbledon and Cincinnati. And I'm not saying that she's a very strong player of the year. It's an extremely weak player of the year, but that's what we have this year. Listen, like, four different people won Grand Slams. Serena's hasn't even played. Then we have the premier uh, mandatories, which are the top four, like the four biggest WTA tournaments outside the slams. Four different people won those. A different person, Wozniacki, won the finals. And Svitolina won three of the premier fives. And those are, those are all different people. Muguruza is absolutely the player of mid-July to mid-August. Absolutely. Right. Is she the player of the year? Uh-huh. I just don't know how well, you it's... can make that judgment and how you can come to that decision before the fifth most important tournament of the year is played. Well, that's the other thing, is that the votes were cast before yeah. the WGA And the finals. argument is made that every professional sport, they announce the winners of these regular season awards before the finals, right? But tennis is totally different. Tennis is not a team sport. It's not the NBA where you have your MVP of the regular season and then you have a finals MVP. It's totally different. The, the WTA finals are absolutely part of the core of the WTA season. 
Mm-hmm. So the long and short of this is that, and why I say there is no WTA Player of the Year, is that it's all it's all muddied. <laughs> it's so should they be giving out a tie? How about, how about we just like uh, make it a two-year award, like just not uh-huh. award this year and then award next year cumulatively? Okay. Halep we mentioned is year and number one, but again in Singapore after losing to Wozniacki, love and two. She then says, I just couldn't feel the ball in my racket. And this is something we've heard from her time and time again this year. We saw it in Toronto, in Cincinnati. After Toronto, she actually apologized for her performance. She apologized like four times in two weeks for those back-to-back events. I don't know who you're apologizing to, but you need to stop. And then to be given the exact same explanation again for this loss. I just don't, I don't understand where these losses mm. come from. She's telling us it's because she couldn't feel the ball in her racket. Right. But it's disconcerting to me. She's just like, she's a very confusing player to me, if I'm being totally honest. I don't get her. And that's not a criticism. I just, I find it harder and harder to root for her because I don't get it. And part of that has to do with how much access she gives, to a, gives us to her thoughts. Mm-hmm. She's very earnest. In the way she answers questions in press. And maybe a little too open. You wanted to talk about last year's top 10 versus this year's top 10? Yeah. The top 10 for this year, the year in top 10, is all but decided. We're going to have the 10th spot decided between Vandewey. Oh, God. Yeah. As of this recording, Vandewey is provisionally number 10. Yeah. Because she she... won her first match in in Zhuhai. It's between uh, Vandewey... Mladenovic, and who's the other one? Sloan. Sloan, yes. Mm. Those so three... would Sloan have to like go undefeated or something Why to get in there? Why are asking me these questions? I do not know. <laughs> Statisticians out there? I don't even know how many points they get for losses, or if they okay. get points for losses in Zhuhai. It's, it's way too much to consider. But those are the three, right? And so last year we had Kerber, Serena, Radvanska, the top three, followed by Halep, Sibolkova, Pliskova, Muguruza at 7 and Kant at 8. And this year, those top three are nowhere to be found. And then at number 5, Sivolkova is nowhere to be found. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Kerber is going to finish around 20. Serena is going to be in the early to mid-20s, depending on what happens in Zhuhai. And that's after not playing the entire year after yeah, Australia. that's based on two tournaments. Uh-huh. Radvanska is going to be finished at 28th. And then Sivolkova is at... 27. Wow. So that leaves a whole lot of space for other players to come through. Hallett moved up from number 4 to number 1. Mogrutha from number 7 to number 2. Wozniacki, who's going to finish the year at number 3, she moves up from number 19 a year ago. Pliskova moves up from 6 to 4. Venus at number 5, year in number 5, comes from number 17 a year ago. Svitolina, up from number 14, is at number 6. Ostapenko, up from 44 a year ago, is up to number 7. Yeah. Mm. And Caroline Garcia is up from number 23 into the top 8. I hope you feel very validated that you picked Garcia as your breakout pick, and it didn't look like it was going to happen in the first part of the year. Mladenovic was bullying her, cyberbullying her, she was outshining her on court, and look at what happened. I think we can, even I can say mm-hmm. we can move on from this now, because I've had my <laughs> moment in the sun, oh. and I'm just grateful that Garcia didn't beat Venus in that semifinal, so that folks won't be saying, oh look, yes. there goes the, there go those body surf punks <laughs> fucking up our <laughs> lives again, right? I think punk would be like one of the nicer words. Right, after what we did with Kerber last year. we You called for Kerber last year to break out. And then this year, my pick was Vitalina. Yes. And yours was Garcia. Yes. And Garcia had a chance to really fuck up Venus's life. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And since she didn't, I'm just going to leave it at that. I'm going to... Okay. I'm ahead of the game. Gloat. I'm not going to gloat. That's just it. It's unfortunate Sibokova is was the defending champion of Singapore and didn't even make Zhuhai this year. Wozniacki's rise has been incredible. She was ranked, like, what, in the 80s, I think, before the U.S. Open 74. last year? 74. And then put together just a stunning fall and brought it into this year. So good on her. I'm going to need you to bring your best self to this next segment because I know you don't want to talk about it. Hmm. You don't know her. You haven't known her for decades. 
but Martina Hingis, current world number one in doubles, mm-hmm. five-time singles champion, has called it quits on her third career on the WTA tour. She surprised everybody by retiring. I in was Singapore. shocked. Yeah, absolutely shocked. Chucky Hingis won thirteen women's doubles titles, seven mixed doubles titles, Grand Slams. I'm talking about way more in just regular WTA circuit. She won the Grand Slam, all four in one year of doubles with Mirana Lucic in 1998 and Novotno. Right. They combined, she combined with the two of them to win all four, and they defeated Davenport and Zvereva in the finals of all four. Mm-hmm. You know, the story of Martina's career is that Venus, Serena, and Lindsay kind of ushered her out of the game. And I don't know that that's entirely true, because she was still reaching Grand Slam finals for several years after she stopped winning Grand Slam singles titles. She made those finals against Jennifer Capriotti. She had match points against Capriotti in 02 at the Australian Open. She retires with a winning record against Venus Williams, which I mean, at, in the late 90s and early 2000s, that's something to hang your hat on. And even when she came back that first time, she made a slam quarterfinal right off the bat. I believe she made the the quarters of the Australian Open. Mm. And she was still able to compete. She was on the cusp of the top 10, just inside or outside the top 10, I believe. And then injuries derailed her career again before she tested positive for cocaine and had to uh, retire again or chose to retire again. And she herself leaves open the possibility that she could come back again. (laughs) She said, if my, my past record is any indicator of what's to come i could be back she did tell her doubles partners jamie murray knew letitia chan knew at the beginning of the year which i wonder if that contributed to the urgency they had to win big titles because they had a hell of a year this year well we've seen that martina for the most part is able to win a lot with whoever she plays with. yes she had that hugely successful partnership with sanya mirza she messed around a little bit with Coco Vandeway and <laughs> a couple other players mm-hmm. before she settled in with Letitia Chan and really dominated 2017. Yes. And apparently it's important to her at this point to be able to go out on top, which she wasn't able to do the previous two times. Maybe that's a big part of it, feeling that Maybe. the last time that she retired, her hand was forced because of the upcoming two-year ban because of the the cocaine oh yeah stuff right mm-hmm. and so for her somebody who is much celebrated in the annals of tennis history who was already inducted into the hall of fame before her most recent comeback maybe this was a way for her to put a pretty little bow on the end of her career and rewrite some of the narratives that would have been less savory in previous tellings of her story mm. see i was good I was so good. <laughs> Martina has had an incredible career, and that has to be respected. Do you want me to tell admired. them what you said privately? No. Okay. I will say, uh, well, I was really rude, and I commented on someone's tweet that my favorite Martina moment was the 1999 Roland Garros final against oh Graf, because it does make for very entertaining rewatches. It really does. She... And this is the paradox of, maybe not the paradox, but... All of Martina Hingis wrapped up into a bow. A genius. Like an absolute genius on the court. So compelling to watch for many, many reasons. Her tennis, obviously. But her psyche is just... It was confounding. And in that match especially, she was leading and then threw it away. But you don't see that anymore from Martina. In her, what, third third career. Well, she's, you an, saw, you she's saw, an adult now. Right. She was a child. That's and... true. But in her third career, what I admire about her is that you see just a killer on court. And and not much was able to distract her. Let's talk about the men. We've gone a long, long time in this episode without talking about the men at all. We are now playing Paris. And what should have lined up as yet another ATP event headlined by Fidal mm-hmm. is now just headlined by Rafa. And he will go for another of the the Masters events that he does not have. Yes. Because Federer withdrew after winning Basel Mm -hmm. last week. Now, did you see what I sent you? I did. Yeah. Guy Forget is the tournament director of Paris, Bercy. And he was upset, to say the least. Mm -hmm. He truly spoke his mind in press. Let me just say, he needs to chill. 
This is ridiculous. This is a segment of the podcast, Timestamp It and Play It Back, Fed Fans, where we will absolutely, unequivocally go to bat for Roger Federer. (laughs) (laughs) I find myself taking up for him a lot recently because, listen, he's 36 years old. He's won 95 ATP titles. He has no doubt gained a lot from the ATP, but he's also given Mm -hmm. millions. And especially in this year where it should be made all the more clear what Federer and Nadal mean to men's tennis, more so, more, 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 more so than even Murray and Djokovic, right? Yeah. They've carried the entire goddamn season on their backs. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say these two old men because Rafa is considerably younger, but Federer is old as fuck for yeah. a tennis player. But 31 is old too. I guess he was uh, getting injections not playing half the year just to get through his retirement season at 36. Federer is yep. having one of the best seasons yep. of his career, 47 and 4, seven titles, picking his spots. He has earned the right to do this. He absolutely How has. How much more can you expect a man to give to his sport and then still want more? It sucks for Guy Forget that a tournament of which he's helming is without Federer. That's obviously a big draw. The potential of a Fidel final is a big draw. But how dare you, frankly, call Federer out his name in these streets in that way? He said... That is crazy. I've been trying to get Federer and Nadal here for months. We've had talks. We've made it so hospitable for them. And they both committed. And now he's pulled out after winning a tournament less than 500 kilometers away. Mm-hmm. As if that makes any difference. And he also took exemption to the fact that it was some paltry little 500 tournament and this mm-hmm. is a Masters, right? But you know well, what? Well, you know what? <laughs> you, you know take what, it. You take it. Maybe this is a little messy, but I don't know why the fuck your tournament's a 1,000. I really don't. This is the Masters that time forgot. Mm-hmm. There is... It's the end of the season. This is the, the finals are coming up with the ugly ass court. Who cares? The court that looks like it hasn't been laid properly, where the bounces all are all over the place. And then you come out here with an indoor court that's slow. What is with all these slow indoor courts? What is their purpose? It's boring. It's boring. No, I just to be serious though, I don't understand how a player who's played twenty years on the circuit is expected to play a full season. And basically make every tournament director happy. It's ridiculous. This is this is in keeping with my perspective on both tours. I believe that the players, because they're technically independent contractors, they do not owe dick to any single tournament. The tournaments have way too much power as it is. You know, enticing people with money, sort of influencing the ATP to make decisions. I don't like it. I don't think the players have a collective voice. And if players don't want to come to your tournament, they really don't have to. And the rules that allow Federer to skip Masters events, I mean... They're designed to benefit somebody who's given so much yes, and but is you, at that stage of his you career. You have to play for an incredible number of years mm. to benefit from those rules. He's also taking exemption to the fact that he's playing Basel and not Paris. Well, Basel is his home his, tournament. His hometown, really? Fine, maybe he's getting a big-ass appearance fee. Mm. But he's also there to play for his home folks. To play for his fellow Swiss yeah. people. I, it just was not a good look. But to your point about these slow-ass indoor courts, Tamani Cariel tweeted a video of Martina Hingis playing Venus Williams mm. at one of oh, the year-end finals. Yeah. In way the back when. Mm-hmm. And the court was so fast. The, uh, I mean, and Martina wasn't blown off the court. Martina was able to use her skills, mm-hmm. redirect, do what she needed to. But the net effect was... Exciting tennis. Right. And that was always the draw of indoor courts. So why, in this era of homogenizing surfaces, Mm. should that extend to indoor courts? That's crazy to me. Indoor tennis should be a unique animal unto itself. It's an entirely different brand of tennis. You get to see serve and volley on an indoor court. (laughs) You get to see all different manner of styles of play. And... Whatever. I agree. I mean, at this point of the season, it's been a long season. Half the top 10 is injured, has closed up shop. You really want these people out here for like three, four hours grinding inside? And this is what Venus said. Venus shaded the fuck out of Singapore because she said, oh, you know, the court's very slow. 
especially at the end of the year or something yeah. like that. You know, it's why do you want to see these grinding slug fests at this point of the year? Just let it be done. Like literally, who cares about Paris? And Roger doesn't care about year end number one. Obviously, he no. chose Basel over Paris. <laughs> right. He probably knew it was going to be one or the other before. He already has the record for number one. What What does he care? And if he's not there for number one at your events, then too bad. Mm. That's his choice. Now, last week's results, Songa got to another final in Europe. He just plays well in Europe. He had some really big wins that week, too. He beat Hachinov, Jumor, who's been on an absolute tear on hard courts, Sasha Zverev, which is the big one, and Cole Schreiber. Unfortunately, he lost to Puy in the final. So Puy wins Vienna, Dominic Team's home court. Dominic Team like, shit the bed like he has all fall. Joe got in a little bit of a tussle with the umpire, and it wasn't cute, but... That was in the Jumhor match, where Jum, the, the umpire was telling Jumhor that he yes. needed to show more effort. But it wasn't only that match. Oh, <laughs> so he was testy all week. Yeah, yeah. Federer wins Basel, obviously. His eighth title there, his 95th title overall. In the final, he faced Del Potro. He looked, you know, alternately amazing and untouchable, and at other times, not so great. He looked tired, ornery. He was definitely a kind of a pissy baby in that final. <laughs> Would you agree? I did not watch the final. Oh, for some reason, I got up to watch it. I don't know why. Because I heard, I saw on Twitter, Del Potro was playing well. So I'm like, okay, maybe I should yeah, just what happened saunter was down to the TV. You sniffed a Federer loss in home court, and you're like, I'm going to get up to see this. <laughs> the problem is I can't sleep in anymore on weekends because I'm used to waking up early. So I'm awake. I might as well go watch the tennis. If it was a Federer blowout, obviously I'm not interested. I tweeted right before that match that, you know, for a split second, I, th I was like, why are Fed fans coming for Del Potro so much? Mm. Then it's like, oh, yeah, oh, that, mm, and that, <laughs> ah, and that. <laughs> there are a lot of reasons. Yeah. And uh, in this year, particularly, where Fed fans must have felt like, oh, my God. This guy again. They finally can say Federer has the better of Nadal right mm. now. You know, they're enjoying that right. he's resurgent, winning everything, beating Nadal in the head-to-head. And here comes Del Potro to fuck up their lives, <laughs> to not make it a perfect season, yeah. right? And he was close. He he had his chances. And I think a bit of that may have been mental, to be honest. I really think he Del had Potro's a shot to win that probably match. probably just tired. He's played a True. lot of tennis. True. I th I saw somewhere that he's 12-2 and two since, the, since the U.S. Open, mm -hmm. which is yeah. the most sustained tennis he's played and at that level and winning for years yes and has put himself in real contention for the finals in london we talked about the women's player of the year this men's player of the year debate is still going on it is, is it altered anything by Federer winning his seventh title of the year um maybe i think the win-loss record is is pretty crazy the fact that he's lost only four matches he's only played what 11 tournaments and he's won seven of them that's wild of course he skipped a big chunk of the year uh, you so... have to imagine there would have been a couple more losses had he played clay. yes okay it would have been two tournaments mm -hmm. he probably would have played one lead-up event and then the french open right so at most two more losses to his record so still 47 and 6 is a That's is a great record. crazy i think it is a uh, up for debate i believe it's Nadal, but i will hear arguments to the contrary the paradox for me is that if you want to talk about head-to-heads, Federer has owned Nadal in the head-to-head. Four now, mm -hmm. this year. And five consecutive from last year. Okay, so if you want to use that argument, that's great. Then Federer is the player of the year. However, if you are a Federer fan, that does undermine your GOAT argument. So you cannot have it both ways. So if you want to say that Federer has had the better year because of the leading head-to-head... You can't also say that he's the GOAT because, you know, Nadal has a better head-to-head -head against Federer. To be clear, you know what I mean? we're not interested in the GOAT I'm just of all-time debate. If you're a Federer fan, this is a catch-22. Mm. And the same way, in the same way, for Nadal fans. There's uh, not much to say about this Paris preview. <laughs> well, I guess we kind of made our feelings clear we'll about just Paris, see right? what, We'll just see what happens. <laughs> Zhuhai, it is... For a lot of people, the WTA season is done. 
Officially, it's not mm. because we have this second tournament <laughs> after, <laughs> you know, the second yeah. year in tournament. There should be some exciting matches. Go enjoy it. We'll talk about it next time. We're not going to preview it here. Okay. It's, uh, I don't know. I, I really don't know what to say about that. Well, I think they kind of shoot themselves in the foot with the weird round robin event, like the just three people in each group. I don't like that no. very much. Gurgis and Streets of a, kudos to them, basically snuck in to the draw with some crazy late season results. And Gurgis has put together a really great season. She has a lot of wins this season. Mm-hmm. Just anybody but but Colleen, right? That's, I know. that's all we got to say. Colleen did win today over Pung. Gurgis beat Rabarakova. And Kerber lost to Pavlyuchenkova for the third time this year. Kerber was on the on the bubble as well. She wasn't a sure shot to make it. The last bit of news before we get into our see what happened was, mm. which is non-tennis stuff. A little bit tennis stuff because the person in question is a big tennis fan. So it's not totally oh, yeah, out of left that's field. That's true, yeah. Sasha Zverev has pulled out of the next-gen finals. For a long time, there was speculation as to whether he would play both because he still qualifies as a next-gen player, but he's also top 10. He also qualified for the ATP final. So was he going to play both? <laughs> and he has decided that he will mm. not. I am. He's decided. I'm shocked. He's decided to humble himself and he will only play the next gen finals. He says, but... I am not worthy already yet. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> uh, to the surprise of literally no one, he will not be playing Milan in the next gen finals. He's current gen. Yeah. He was ranked number. He had a top four seat at the US Open. Really, what is the point? Or see what happened was is timely it happened sunday night kevin spacey mm-hmm. who the tennis connection he's apparently a big andy Murray fan he's always in the royal box he's seen many times at the grand slams but he has orchestrated some of the most despicable shit i have seen in some time in defense of his despicable behavior truly oh do you want to tell it you tell it okay so Anthony Rapp, who a lot of you theater nerds know from Rent, from the original cast of Rent, he recently revealed that he had been basically sexually assaulted by Kevin Spacey at a party in the late 80s when Anthony was 14 and Kevin Spacey was a grown-ass adult working in the New York theater. He was 26 at the time. Mm. In response, Kevin Spacey released this message the next day, a statement I had seen people referencing it and not really knowing what had happened. I'm not, I don't mm. think I even knew the Anthony Rapp thing at that point. And then I read his statement and I was like, this is mind blowing. Right. It's, it's crazy. A bit of context. Kevin Spacey is somebody about whom there have been whispers about his predatory sexual behavior for decades. Mm-hmm. There have been whispers about that, and there have also been whispers about the fact that he's gay, right. which he has never come I mean, before. he's really the most famous closeted yes. actor in America. That part is much more known than the, the sexual allegations. There was a Gawker piece that was written a couple of years ago that, while it didn't name names, it detailed a lot of the stuff surrounding Kevin Spacey. Mm-hmm. And so Kevin Spacey, on the face of this allegation from... Anthony Rapp says, essentially, it may have happened. He doesn't remember. It was 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. It may have happened. If it did, it was just a drunkenly thing to a 14-year-old. Right. A, chi- a literal a, a child. child. And you've seen pictures of Anthony Rapp as a 14-year-old. He's not one of these people who pedophiles say, oh, he looked older. You know how Roman Polanski talks. And it no, wasn't he like looked an, like a child. Like an accident or tried to frame it as an accident. Like, Anthony Rapp gave full details right. as to what happened in that bedroom. And... Right? And he made no effort to refute that. So that's one part of it. And we have to understand that when these stories are written, they have to be extensively researched. Mm-hmm. Because you are so vulnerable to lawsuits. No one is publishing stories like this without serious vetting. So he says, it may have happened. And if I made him feel any kind of way back then, I really am sorry. And now I want to take this opportunity 
to announce to the world that I've had relationships with men. Everybody knows that. I've had relationships with women. Everybody knows that. And now I want to live my authentic life. Mm. And I'm here to declare to all of you that I am going to be living... I choose yes. to live my life as a gay man. Like, hold well, the fuck... Bully for you. ...up. Because you lived through the entirety of the time where your coming out could have made a difference in mm-hmm. people's lives. Right? The entirety yes. of it. And you decide to stay in the closet. And that's your choice. But do not now be coming out of the closet in the same breath as saying, yes, I may have molested that child. To say, I am now gay as like a 70-year-old man. To then <laughs> save my ass yeah. and my career and my my face. And not go to jail. Right? right. This is entirely self-serving. Well, of, he, of course he won't go to jail. He he may be paying off a few people. That, that's how this stuff works. None of these people are going to... Harvey Weinstein is not going to jail. Bill Cosby's not going to jail. But the hope and the reason why I imagine Anthony Rapp felt more emboldened at this time is that we are riding a wave of people telling their stories yes. of what had happened to them. And if more of these stories are exposed, then perhaps we can get to a situation where those people are weeded out and some change in Hollywood is made, mm-hmm. right? That's the idyllic situation. I think one of the very few good things that can come from this is is showing how power and masculinity weave these webs and that it's not limited to straight men, that gay men can be predators too, that, that men can be victims, women can be victims, but also that pedophiles are not necessarily gay or straight. Pedophiles are pedophiles. Mm. They like children. The and thing. What, what did Emma Thompson call it? What a crisis of masculinity? Yes. The part that is so galling and so difficult to take for us is the conflation of homosexuality and pedophilia. That Kevin Spacey, after living through the AIDS crisis as an adult, after living through rumors and innuendos about gay people that have lost us our jobs, indeed our lives, people that, are still... that gay people have tendencies toward children. Well, that's the crux of why yes. gay people have been discriminated against for centuries, right? It's, well, it's one of that, Well, that's the main crux mm-hmm. and the one that's been disseminated the most. But that he can know that and still make a statement like that is, I mean, it's just so upsetting. And the fact that now, after all this time, he wants to use us as a shield, because that's all it is. He wants to announce himself as part of the LGBT community and take us with him. No, thank you. And watch how this works. As soon as he issued that statement, so many of the headlines were Kevin Spacey comes out. Right. That's what you got from that. Because to me, what I, the main idea I got from those two paragraphs was, I may or may not be a pedophile. That's what I read. How can you read it and not see that? <laughs> Well, this it I've doesn't sent, take a BA I've in you Privately, that this is what I think is the main issue with North America in this day and age: a serious lack of reading comprehension. Mm. Like people read something and they get something totally different, right. or they feel like they can apply what they want to believe. Like, well, that's the thing. It is. It's a lack of reading comprehension, but it's also this need to impose your own worldview, or maybe an inability to. To, to avoid doing that. To your point, that is the most disgusting part about this. Mm-hmm. The conflation. Right. And I think a lot of young, maybe young gay people don't even realize that was a thing. Do you know what I mean? And this is my biggest problem with young queer people these days. Not knowing their histories. Yeah, but I don't think, I'm not trying to blame them in this situation. No, but, but that's, not, that's not my point. Mm. It's not about blaming them. It's about having a curiosity. We're at a point now where somebody like Kevin Spacey can take advantage of that. Correct. That doesn't trigger something in everyone's brain as being wrong or being historically loaded. That Kevin Spacey can use, to be frank, the deaths of countless gay men and And women women. to now advance this cover-up. Yeah. Because people aren't in tune anymore with what has come before, the entirety of what's come before. That's a problem for me on the user end. But on Kevin Spacey's end, Mm. it's even 
tenfold problematic because he knows. He's oh, lived yeah. through it all, as yeah. you said. It's as sinister as can be imagined. Like, and even more so. Like, I can't fully wrap my head around how he could do this. I mean, I get why he did mm-hmm. it <laughs> and why it's happening, but how of course. he could do this, especially after all those decades in the closet. Maybe he was out, as he says to his friends, but publicly in the closet mm. and not taking that platform to help people. Like, he could have helped so many people over the last 30 years, and he chose not to. He doesn't care. He's the Margaret Court of closeted gay actors. Oh my god. No, really. The only solace I take from this is that I think that the community has rejected him. I don't know about his own personal community. I'm sure his his people are circling the wagons. I saw but some... the LGBT community at large, I think, says no thank you. I saw some gays on Twitter be like, thank you, Kevin. Uh-huh. That, well, that speaks to something. I think that speaks to what I was telling you before. About not knowing your mm-hmm. history, right? Yeah, I agree. Is there any anything else you want to say about Kevin Spacey? No. I just, honestly, I hope he goes away. Like, I never want to see him again. I hope his career dies. And and that's that. And you know what will be really interesting to see? The people who come out eventually. Maybe not next month or even six months from now, but maybe next year, who are still seeing, seen around the place with these folks. Mm. But believe you me, there there's more coming out about Kevin. Oh, yeah. Like, just buckle up. Mm-hmm. And many more people as well. I hope yeah. this just keeps coming and we never get fatigued about yeah. it. 101 is in the books. Thanks for listening. As always, my name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James. I'm at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. And we are at The Body Surf on both Twitter and Instagram. Thank you for listening. Please, uh, you know, write us a review on either iTunes or your favorite podcast app. It helps drive traffic to us. And we appreciate you listening. And uh, again, thanks for helping us get to number 100. And we want to issue a special thank you to Dan Hatch, who reached out to us with some wonderful words as a new listener to the show. Yeah. Said that he listened to us on a long-haul flight, six episodes straight. I don't know how anybody could do that with one <laughs> without wanting to kill themselves. I frankly. sure can't listen to you for six <laughs> episodes straight. I'm ready to like, go in the other room and take a break right now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Dan. That's really, really great to hear. Tell your friends. Till next time. 